0: You are now listening to the July 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and it's time to pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth. Without the shock value, this program may contain mature language and subject matter.
1: Welcome to Walking Hour Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time.
2: Welcome to Walking Your Talk, and this is Alan Heller. Hi, Polly.
1: Hi, Alan.
2: We've been married for 43 years, have three grown children. We have four grandchildren, two boys, two girls. Two of them are in Nashville, makes it hard to visit in Phoenix, but we try and get together at least four times a year. That's our goal, and if we can get together any more, we will.
1: Well, and I do have to say that grandparenting is wonderful. Mm. Grandchildren are so much easier than children.
2: (laughs) Well, the pressure to perform is quite a bit less.
1: (laughs) Well, You can just be
2: all good and and then you give them back and let the parents deal with the discipline.
1: That's right.
2: And they don't want us to deal with it anyway. So (laughs) we're talking about completeness in our marital mystery tour where we started with uh, comradeship being friends, and then we went on to communication and commitment, and now we're into completeness, and we're talking physical, emotional, spiritual. So the last time we were together, we talked, we got through the spiritual part, which is the most important part, because that's where God starts, and uh, we need to have a spiritual relationship in order to be able to be one. We also need to have a relationship emotionally, things that help us, things like keeping away from anger and making sure we have short accounts and saying things that are nice, doing things that are valuing to your spouse. Those are the kind of things. And now we're talking about the physical part of our relationship. And just our desire is that we're not going into a theological treatise as much as we want to talk about the practical things that can help in this. And the world emphasizes the outward so much, and we are such a sexualized society, and yet we have the most dysfunction. Because uh, one of the shows I'd like to do, Paulie, is I'd like to get Steve and Marla Wagner, who have a ministry called Revive Forty, for the forty million Christian men out there in the United States that. Um, are dealing with pornography, looking on the internet, and it's so accessible. And what uh, statistics are showing is that many men, 20 and 30 years old, who are married, are having a hard time even having a physical response to a woman because they are so overly stimulated through a two-dimensional object or watching the internet. And it's an addictive behavior that after a while, completely controls them. And so the emotional intimacy is gone because most men are insecure and feeling like, if I talk to you and you reject me, then I'm done. And then physically they get disconnected or they have lots of escapades with many different women when God designed it to be in a committed relationship, one man, one woman, uh, in marriage. And he didn't do that to kill our joy. He actually did it so that we would have security and a commitment of love in his design. And so we'll talk about our, we have this 21 tips for making your mate smile in the sexual area. So as we've talked about before, uh, Kevin Lehman talked about that sex begins in the kitchen. There's a mystery and romance that needs to be kept alive in the marriage. And it starts by just being able to talk with one another has nothing to do with the bedroom. If men don't recognize the value of their wife, when she's up to her ears in diapers and dirty dishes, she probably is not going to be very responsive or amorous at bedtime. <laughs> well, that's Was true. that true when we had three kids under the age of 10?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. There's... A real connection between what goes on in just the ordinary day-to-day stuff of life around the house and whether or not I'm going to be sexually (laughs) responsive later in the day.
2: So talk about number two, the woman that wants a whole relationship, not just sex, in this uh, old film that right now is dating us a little bit, Bridges of Madison County. Tell a little bit about that.
1: Well, the the movie was all about, and the book that the movie was based on, was just about a woman who was very unappreciated by her family in general. And uh, it happens that everyone is away for a few days and she is alone in the house when a stranger comes along who's photographing all these covered bridges Mm -hmm. in the area. And he asks her to show him around, and in just the course of that couple of days, this stranger appreciates her beauty and her creativity and her wit, things that had sort of gone unnoticed by her family for so long that they had kind of died, And, and this stranger awakens all of that within her and and so they end up in a very torrid love affair for just the matter of a, a couple of days and then he goes away and the whole thing sort of comes to an end but it's always she has written it down in a journal that her kids discover after she has died and that shouldn't be the case in the lives of of Christians. We should be able to see the beauty and the wonder and, of our spouse and appreciate each other for who we are, not just for what we do for each other as we function around the home and take care of our duties around the house, but to see each other as the unique human beings that God created us and designed us. Well, and there us are different
2: be. stages of that i mean when you've got little kids and you're in your 30s and you're trying to make a career and build your life that's the busiest time of your life uh james dobson wrote a book what husbands wish their wives knew about women to understand how tired they really are it's
1: what wives wish their husbands knew
2: yeah well that, <laughs> whatever it is um so what wives wish their husbands knew about women and um, just talked about how totally, you know, depleted they are during that time of life. Right. Which is the reason why you need to just sort of take, get away as soon as you can when a baby is done, uh, you know, nursing. If you're nursing or you can't get away because they're you know, infants. But a certain time you need to just, even if you can grab a half a day or two hours or a, overnight, just you and your wife uh, that can add a lot of spice into a relationship that you know is a lot of drudgery and uh taking a lot of energy from both of you
1: right I think another piece of it is that you always gave me throughout our marriage um a night off at least one night Mm. uh, maybe even more but I'll take the kids. You go. Just do whatever right. you want to do, do, the do the for dinner. yourself.
2: I remember fighting over trying to push you out of the house because <laughs> you're still trying to do all this stuff for the kids. I'm going, this is your night out. And then I realized I probably was going a little bit too far. You know, you wanted me to be nice about pushing you out
1: all right <laughs> Right. Well, and for me, if I came home and the dishes weren't done, you know, and the house was a mess... It was hardly worth it for me to go out because I was still going to have all the work to do when I got home anyway. <laughs> so I mean, that was the way I was. I viewed it, but I we were both young. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I think it's. <laughs> and really, now we're old. Now we're old, and we don't have little kids around the house anymore. But I think it's important to give yourself permission to take some time for yourself, to take a class. If you if you're creative and you want to pursue some art, some form of art, whether it's painting or or writing or sculpting or photography or, sport or, or whatever, yeah, whatever it I is, mean, I think it's great.
2: Our daughter Jessica used to be a, a, a soccer player, and even with all her kids and having young kids and stuff. She still has an intramural league that she's a part of, and that's just something she enjoys, and that adds to their marriage.
1: Yes, that's right. I think if we are still each individually whole people, then we're not so needy and looking at each other to meet our needs, which we can't possibly do.
2: So number three is women yearn for romance for its own sake, not just as a means toward sex. Uh, you men can't expect that if you bring home flowers, light a few candles, run a bubble bath, that your wife is immediately ready for passionate sex. Uh, that's pretty straightforward there. <laughs> that's right. Maybe she wants to just enjoy a quiet candlelit moment. Uh, maybe just dinner together with candles, turn out the lights. Uh, or if she likes the lights, sometimes Polly goes, I can't see my food. It's very romantic. <laughs> but uh, So you need to adjust the lights. Well, but, and for
1: me, too, it could be let's just go for a walk holding hands or yeah. just sit here for a few minutes. And or
2: me listening for at least a half hour while you talk about all the things that you did today.
1: I know. That can be very romantic. And, <laughs> and guys,
2: you can't think, oh, gosh, do we have to do this again? That will not uh, get you points uh, going in the right direction. <laughs> no.
1: And we, we talked in a uh, previous podcast about um, wanting non-sexual touching and just needing to be held and hugged and uh, maybe have my back scratched or my neck rubbed or my shoulders rubbed.
2: Or your feet rubbed. Or my
1: feet. Oh, my feet. Um,
2: Yeah, but I mean, I hear in counseling, guys will, you know, the women will report to me He's just grabbing me by the boobs and thinking that's (laughs) sexual or pinching my butt or whatever. And for guys, we're just thinking that's cute. And for women, they're thinking that is not Uh, cute.
1: That's just objectifying me, just making me into an object for your pleasure.
2: But, I mean, there does need to be laughter. There does need to be kidding. But you need to find out what helps your spouse feel loved and excited That's right. So, and we already talked about in another episode, keeping short accounts that if there are hurts and things that are not taken care of by saying, I'm sorry, honey, I spoke to you that way this morning or whatever, then it's going to disrupt the bedroom. Many times the bedroom is just a reflection of what's going on in the emotional temperature of the relationship. And I have a lot of women who are saying, hey, we need to come in, and of course everyone says, we need help in communication. And then you dig a little deeper, and not only is there, the reason why there's no communication is because of the hurts and pains that have been laid upon each other that have never been really resolved. And some for 20 years, 15 years, Uh, little things, big things, but uh, Solomon says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. And and so sometimes it is the toothpaste cap and the toilet seat and all that sort of thing. But those are just reflection of deeper issues of places where we haven't repaired the relationship. And I find that many people, Pauly, don't really even have a way to repair. They don't understand that I need to identify the hurt that I laid on you. I need to express it to you and say, please, I'm sorry. Please forgive me or... I'm sorry for speaking to you in that tone of voice. That was wrong. Please forgive me. Those simple words, but they can't just be. Well, and
1: sometimes it isn't even that was wrong. Sometimes it is I realize that hurt you. Mm. I hurt you. I I cut into your soul and, and that hurts and that damage has not been repaired. And we talk a lot in our communication workshops about, Clearing, clearing the air and mm-hmm. coming to a place of understanding each other and being able to repair the damage, but to realize that without that communication and without that understanding with, and without repairing the damage, our sexual lives <laughs> are going to be affected. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, maybe you can still go through a physical act of sex But it's not that oneness. It's not that completing of each other. It becomes a a sense of duty and obligation on the part of usually of the woman. Uh, You know, now I have to do this for him. And the passion and the joy of it is affected by the lack of communication and and emotional. I want to
2: caution the women. Women do not understand. It is a physical thing for men, but it's also an emotional need that we like to be comforted. We like the physical act is something that God made us to want. And so be careful of disrespecting your husband and, and minimizing his desire. Um, a professor that we often quote, is Howard Hendricks used to say, that the sexual relationship is for procreation, of course, to propagate the race, because Genesis, in Genesis it says, be fruitful and multiply, but it's also for protection. So we have uh, procreation, protection, and then pleasure. So protection, meaning that if I am uh, ravished with your love, Paulie, then I'm not going to be looking in other places. And so regular times of sexual intercourse with love, not just uh, quickie here and there. I mean, if we only lived on McDonald's, uh, you know, there was that uh, documentary called Super Size Me where the guy just lived on McDonald's and within a day or two, he was – Puking his guts out because that's you can't live on fast food, and the same with your sexual relationship. You know, once in a while, it's okay to do a quickie because you both are ready for that, or one of you needs it, or whatever. But the desire is to have a holistic relationship where there are special times together. This is it says we're to be representing Christ and His Church. There's a spiritual component here that so many times we we forget because we're so into the physical. So, husbands need to recognize that the physical as well as emotional needs of the, the, um, the wife, a husband's testosterone drive need for sex is every bit as viable as a wife's need. I mean, a funny story about this was um, the Rossbergs, who are America's Family's coaches, wrote a book called Five Love Needs of Every Couple. And um, one time, Gary wanted to help his wife, Barb, understand uh, how important this was to him. So he just told her one day, hey, let's just, I just want you to go on a shopping spree. No, no uh, holes barred. And so they went all day shopping and he went around with her and they were in this store and she put down all these things and she was waiting for him to pull out his credit card and he, he said, you know, I just don't feel like paying for this. And she just got incensed. And he said, that's how I feel when you say, not tonight, honey. I got a headache or uh, not, I don't <laughs> oh, feel like it. Oh, so my that, goodness.
1: How that, mean. Yes, right.
2: That, <laughs> that really helped her understand her drive to shop and to get clothes and to— do all that. And
1: the withheld satisfaction. Exactly.
2: So if that clicks with any of you women.
1: Well, I think it is important for a woman to understand that this is a need in a man, that that men have a buildup of actual physical pressure. It's not just a, a brutishness. It's not a selfishness. It's something that is well, there's a chemical crying issue within going them on yeah that they, that they, they, they absolutely needs to be released one way or another and and she is the way that god designed biblically in his design for them that for that need of his to be met
2: so and if you're single i mean that's I have never had anybody die from not having sex, so it isn't that you can't live without having that uh, release. And we don't want you, you know, right? But the that's wrong not idea. that's
1: not what we're talking about, though. I mean, our discussion here is about sex within couple. our marriage, and so these two things though, that we've been talking about are tied together. That when we have unresolved conflict and And issues and unforgiveness going on that a woman feels like her need to be understood and loved is not being met at at the same time. So that's causing her to withdraw from him emotionally when at the same time he has this driving physical need. So somehow these two things have to come together that you both have to recognize the importance of keeping short accounts with each other and being quick to ask forgiveness and to meet each other's emotional needs as well as physical needs.
2: Right. So we've covered less than half of these, and so next podcast we'll continue with number seven and talking about the things that can help make your mate smile in the area of sex. God's not ashamed of sex. He designed it, but he also designed it in a certain way that will be the most fulfilling for both of us. So stay tuned for next podcast, and we'll finish our Things to Make You Smile.
1: This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
3: Tendeth death my way when sorrows like sea. shall be so
0: up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Resisting and Looking, based on 1 Peter 5, 6-11. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua.
4: Proverbs 3.34 says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So that's Peter's reason for saying, be humble towards one another in verse 5. And and also, for saying after that, humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God in verse 6. So just let that sink in for a second. First, notice what he says, that God opposes the proud. We know that before God, in the sense that God is actually actively postured against pride. Now, I know that pride seems like one of those sins that we rarely identify or take seriously. But God consistently calls out pride in the Old Testament if you were just to read straight through, you'll you'll see everywhere that he sees it as kind of a big deal. At its heart, pride is seeing yourself as above a need for God, or maybe even above God's reach. In other words, you're elevating yourself to such a place that you're like, man, I am beyond a need for the help of God. I've got this God. I'm sufficient in and of myself. Or that you're beyond his reach in the sense that maybe I've disobeyed God, but God can't get me. I've protected myself sufficiently. So you almost sense that you are insulated above God, way up above him. I think we get this kind of image in Obadiah 1, 3 to 4. Uh, There, God is speaking about the pride of Edom as they are trying to intimidate the people of God, Israel, threatening them. And God says this. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty, high-up dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Who can get me and bring me down? And though you soar like the eagle, God says, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Do you see that image? Pride is this thought that you are high above God. This is worse than Babylon. Uh, You remember the Tower of Babel where they tried to build a tower up to God. Well, here we have a people who think they have built a tower above God so that God can't even get to them. And that's what pride does to the human heart. Don't miss this. God postures Himself against proud hearts in all of its manifestations. And not only that, we find in this verse, I believe that God in His kindness postures Himself against the pride of even His children. But grace be to God that His posture towards us is different. But God disciplines pride out of His children too. Hebrews 12.6 says, The Lord disciplines the one that He loves. and includes the sin of pride. He will empty us of every misplaced confidence that makes us feel secure apart from God. Do you feel the weight of that this morning? Those things that we take comfort in that make us feel insulated against suffering and persecution, and being put in uncomfortable spots apart from God, those are issues of pride that make God actually opposed to us, that bring discipline upon us. He will empty it of us because it is His grace. Whether it's our strength physically, or the degrees that we hang on our walls, or the influence that we have because of the relationships that we've built, or the wisdom that we have, or the intelligence and our IQ... Or the good works that we have done? Or past successes? Or our savings accounts? God can delete all of those things in a moment to remind us that He is God and He is alone. And that there is none above Him. Any good that we trust in that leads us to think that we are anything less than utterly dependent upon God will be stripped of us to humble us. What grace it is when God strips us of those things that we place confidence in apart. It is the goodness of God that does that. He tells us in this very verse, did you notice that he, right after he says that God opposes the proud, he says God also gives grace to the humble. He humbles the proud, his humble children, so that he can give them more of himself. So if God strikes the proud with one hand, notice that he helps the humble with the other. Do you see that? He's striking the proud with one hand, but the other, he is lifting up the weak and the humble. See, God presses down the proud as he is exalting and lifting up the humble. He begins by saying, clothe yourselves in this verse. Notice before this verse, he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Now, here we see one of those sixty one others another's that we find in the New Testament that speaks about the way that the Christian community ought to treat one another, particularly in the context of the local church. Peter Ochtemeier, speaking of this verse, says the apostles utilize this image of clothing, of putting on a garment as being appropriate for servile activity. It was a special garment for servile activity. It's, it's like the garment a slave tied over his normal clothes to perform lowly jobs. In other words, they're, they're not to show up at church in, in tuxes spiritually or, or like emotionally or like in the way they think about themselves. Like they're showing up with garments that are ready to serve. He says every member should come not to exalt themselves, but really to stoop down and serve others in the way that Christ did. Now, here's what's fascinating. The apostle moves from communal humility to theological humility. Did you see that? He begins with how we should treat each other. But notice that our humility with one another depends on whether we truly believe and trust that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. See, Peter's clear about what a humble church or God's flock will do as suffering heats up. Are you ready? This is what humility looks like in real time, according to Peter in verses 6 to 7. Here's what he says. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And here's how you do it. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That's a particular way that we practice humility here. There are other ways that we need to be humble. But here, in particular... It is this action of, as suffering hits, we are casting our anxieties upon Him. See, humility means receiving or revering and trusting in and obeying God in His mighty hand. When suffering strikes, I think our tendency is, is to go God shopping, looking for better options, right? Like, God's, He doesn't seem to be able to help me now. Does it feel that way? And so maybe I need to look elsewhere for help that God isn't able to provide. I think God needs a spot. Well, that's pride. Not trusting God when you're suffering and not casting your anxieties on Him. That's pride according to this verse. It's not trusting the mighty hand of God. It's looking at the world and not believing that God is strong enough or wise enough to make good on His promise to exalt you on that last day when Jesus comes back. And humility means dependence on God. Now don't miss this. God gives grace to the humble who trust. They have confidence in His mighty, sovereign hand. And because of that, they cast their anxieties on Him because they know that He cares for them. That's the confidence with which they throw. See, God providentially cares for ravens and lilies. Jesus tells us that. And then Jesus asked, and how much more does he care for his children? That is the way that God is sovereignly working behind the scenes for his children. And that is the confidence with which we need to go before God and trust him in all of our circumstances. That's our confident hope that drives our casting. See, God doesn't throw our anxieties into the burn pile. You know what I'm saying? You don't bring an anxiety to God and he says, not really important to me to be burned. It's not the way that God deals with his kids. No, when, when his child comes to him, just like if you have a, a child and your child comes to you and they come to you with concern, not when you're short-tempered, but when you see them crying and you care, you know that, that you're listening and you're engaged. You want to know what's going on. In the same way, God wants to know what's going on. He's not throwing our anxieties on the burn pile. Instead, he is giving grace to the humble. He is responding. He is giving grace to them. And that's why we keep casting is because... He continues to promise that He has more grace to give. See, humility never loses sight of the mighty hand of God, empowering us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Never lose sight of that. Never lose confidence in that. He continues to draw us back to that. And I think there's actually an important lesson about the relationship between humbling, casting, and pride here. You catch this? Humbling, pride, and casting actually are connected. You catch that? Giving into worry? It's actually an example of Pride. Now, you might feel weak when you worry, but he says it's actually a problem with pride. See, pride carries cares around, totes them around, because it's not willing to give them over to God and trust Him. Humility casts cares upon God, trusting that He is able, that He is infinitely wise, that He is good, that He is strong enough, that you might not understand where this is going or why this is happening, but that God does, and that God's doing something, that He's for you. That's the nature of what it looks like to be humble before God. So the choice of whether to carry or to cast, comes really down to how you see God's hand. Is it a mighty hand in your life, or is it a weak hand? The Bible says that God has a mighty hand. In fact, the Old Testament almost uses the mighty hand of God, I believe, is a technical description of the power of God delivering Israel. God's flock, His sheep, out of slavery and into the promised land as their great shepherd. Uh, you'll remember Psalm 136 records this event. And he says there, the psalmist says this, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong or mighty hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. You see it? It was a mighty hand that delivered Israel up and out of bondage and slavery to Egypt, placed them into the promised land as he struck down enemies of God. See, the humble heart recognizes that only God can truly exalt him or her in the ways that they long for. And only God can be trusted to exalt us to where we belong. You know, just think about that. All of the places that we try to soar in our proud hearts, what God says is not like you're coming too high, it's you're aiming too low. If you're trying to exalt yourself. Let me exalt you. When the end comes, You are going to be blown away by what I have prepared for you. Things that you have not seen, that you cannot imagine. Wait for it. But did you notice here that Peter promises that at the proper time, he may exalt you. The proper time. Now this may doesn't mean he might or might not. God will exalt us. He will exalt all of his children. But don't miss this. The proper time tells us that God is never late. Anybody ever here felt like God was late? Anybody here feel like God's late like every day? We know that's experientially the feeling that we have, but theologically the truth is God is never late and His timing is always better than ours. So God's timing, always perfect. God's time is really our timing. God's timing is always better than our timing. And humility before God means that we wait on God's time, trusting in God's plan and casting our cares on God because our infinitely sovereign, wise, good God most certainly cares for us. So says the cross. And God always gets all of his sheep, all of the way home, even if one of the 99 strays and he has to chase after him. And not only do Christians need to trust God, they need to third, watch out for the devil. They need to watch out for and resist the devil. Did you see that in verses 8 to 9? Be aware of God caring for you. Be aware of your need to watch out for and resist the devil. You'll notice in verse 8, again, he says this. He says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, this is the third time that Peter has encouraged Christians to be sober-minded. And the the idea is you need to be awake and alert because something important is happening. Before, he's been talking about the return of Christ, but here he's talking about an enemy. And he says, knowing your enemy is important. I think that you guys would probably like to know if this church had a pet lion that we let loose in the service, right? I'd like to know that, be aware of it. And here I think that what God wants us to know is, Peter's telling us, you need to know you have an enemy in the world that is loose, that is around, that is looking for you, that wants to eat you, just thought you should know that. I think it's good pastoring to let you know you might be eaten by a lion. And if there is a lion loose, it's no time to sleep or get passive. Now, Peter spent this whole letter talking about God's powerful work amongst his suffering people. And their immediate sufferings have been in view. But here, Peter offers a brief footnote on that cosmic meta-narrative that I spoke of. The big story of how God is actually at work in a grand cosmic war that he has already won in Christ, that he is sovereign over, but that is still at play where there are forces that are unseen that are actually affecting our daily lives. And their ultimate battle is spiritual. So just think about this. They've been thinking about all of the physical manifestations of their problems. Co-workers, the friends, the family that are making fun of them or they're giving them a hard time. Uh, They're thinking about maybe political authorities that are against them. And what he is saying here, I believe, is is that there's actually something grander that you need to be aware of, that there's actual spiritual darkness that is against you. Now notice first that he says, watch out for the devil in verse 8 where he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. See, Peter here turns his attention from God's empowering to the devil's devouring. Do you see that? Now, Satan, uh, that's a word that means adversary, and devil means accuser, but he's the enemy of the sheep of God. Now, I remember when I first moved to Phoenix, I was meeting with a guy who was involved with this ministry his whole life, and he was telling me about this great story about he, how he had all of a sudden, he'd been a Christian his whole life, and he just started believing that the devil was an actual person. He's like, I thought it was just like, you know, a metaphor for stuff. But I think the Bible actually believes there's like this, this thing that's like a, a devil. Said basic Christianity. What were you leading again? I think that's kind of like necessary to know your enemy if you're going to be a spiritual leader, right? And the enemy that we have here, the great enemy that we were called to be aware of is Satan. Now, Peter's footnote here sounds a lot like Paul. And how he ends Ephesians. If you remember that in Ephesians chapter 6. Do you remember? He goes through this grand depiction of the salvation of God in the first two chapters of Ephesians. And then he talks about the way that that ought to play out in relationships between various people. And then he ends in chapter 6 with this description of how we ought to put on the whole armor of God. And he says this in verses 11 to 12. That you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now just take note of the space that Peter has given to God's purposes and suffering throughout Peter so far. Lots of verses that are committed to talking about God and his work in us and our confidence in what God is doing in all of our sufferings. And how God never leaves us or forsakes us. And how He is at work in us. And He's giving all of these promises. And then He comes to the end and He gives two notes on the devil. He says that we should be worried about the devil. We need to be aware of the enemy. And here you'll notice that He speaks of this spiritual threat. It is the devil who is on the prowl. Look at this. Like a a roaring lion looking for his next meal. He's hungry to destroy their faith and cause them to default on that end time reward that's coming with Christ. See, his bite and roar in this text are the persecutions and sufferings the devil is using to intimidate the flock of God. He's trying to intimidate them through sufferings and persecutions. And then he wants to send them running away from trusting in the chief shepherd. That's his goal. Don't trust Jesus. Don't cast your cares upon God. You need to look elsewhere. You need to scatter and run. See, Jesus cares for his sheep and Satan tries to crush them. Now this image of the devil prowling and seeking to to devour God's people might be more pregnant with meaning than we first realize. You might have read Psalm 22 where it speaks of another shepherd, David, the great king of Israel, who himself felt intimidated by the danger that surrounded him. In verses 12 to 13. And there he writes of his intimidated moment, and he says this, Many bulls encompassed me, strong bulls of Bashan, surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Now the bulls of Bashan, they were these famed brutish beasts known to be large, strong, aggressive, and intimidating. They were intimidating bulls. And David is here comparing his enemies, the people that are scaring him to his, to these bulls. See, David envisions these intimidating bulls as actually also being like ravening, roaring lions looking to eat him. I think this is a fascinating image if you really think about it. David's killed like actual lions, right? We know he at least killed one when he was protecting his sheep. As a shepherd, an actual shepherd, he has killed a real lion. Uh, He's killed giants, right? So got a guy that's killed lions and giants. And, you know, Saul killed his thousands and he killed his ten thousands. Like David's not a weak guy. He's also like the great king of Israel, like the greatest king they've ever known. The king after which every other king would be measured. That's King David. And King David is intimidated. That's scary stuff when the king's intimidated. Just think about that. Like, when I go flying on a plane, there are a lot of things that don't scare me. Like, I'm used to getting on a plane and looking over and seeing a man or a woman kind of drip the chair for, like, dear life. I'm used to seeing people, you know, taking pills that, like, put them to sleep or, you know, for anxiety or whatever. Like, I'm I'm used to that. I'm used to the squeals when we get a little bit of turbulence. Like, people, oh, you know, that kind of thing. Doesn't, like, make me really nervous. I'm like, yeah, that happens. But if at any point in the trip I see Pilot run out of the cockpit looking for a parachute... I'm terrified, right? And if the king of kings, David, is scared, intimidated, like, I feel like we're in trouble. And that's exactly the kind of image that we get of King David here. He's terrified. And it's in that moment that in Psalm 22:22, David says, he cries out, save me from the mouth of the lion. You see that? Terrified of the lion. Of course, the very next Psalm is another famous Psalm, Psalm 23. You'll remember what it says there. Uh, David says that he's a shepherd who's looking to a greater shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. Don't miss this. David was stronger than most, braver than most. But when his enemies growled and roared, David flinched. He was scared. David looked for a greater shepherd than himself. Shepherd who cared for him and did not flinch before the bulls of Bashan that opened their mouths and roared like lions. And Jesus is that greater shepherd that David looked for and to, who came after to defeat the spiritual line behind all of the physical lines that intimidated him. When the devil roars... Jesus never flinches. He's not nervous. He sits comfortably, confidently behind the power of the cross. And he declares that you've already been defeated. He's defamed the lion. Now why doesn't Jesus flinch when Satan roars? Well, I I think there are a number of reasons. Let me give you four quick that we find in the Bible. First, it's that Jesus is the greater lion from the tribe of Judah. He is God's lion. Revelation 5-5 tells us that he is the greater lion with the greater roar. He is not intimidated by little lions. Uh, second, Jesus already has shown himself to be the shepherd greater than David, defeated the lion-like Satan at the cross, again in Revelation 5. 5. He has conquered, is what Revelation says. That's not he will, it's he has. He has conquered, he is won, he is victorious. Third, Satan gave it his best shot at the cross when he tried to kill Jesus. Satan is only permitted, and in that we find that he was defeated and that Jesus lives and reigns above all earthly powers. Just read Colossians 1 about that. There is no power uh, that exists apart from God's gracious hand in Christ, holding it and sustaining it. And fourth, Satan is on a short leash. Uh, read Job one about that. It shows that Satan is only permitted to do what God allows. He is not sovereign next to God or equal to God. It's not like Yin and Yang. It's not like they're like duking it out. Like Jesus is victorious. The end. Now, catch this: the threat of being devoured is real. But Jesus tells us in John ten twenty eight. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You catch that? The threat of the being devoured is real. Jesus promises that those are in my hand. I will never let go. So what does that mean? Does that mean that some will be devoured and taken away from the faith that are truly Christians? I don't think so at all. I think what's clear here is, is that everyone who is truly in Christ none will take them or snatch them out of the hand of Jesus. Jesus doesn't lose His sheep. And that's really good news. True sheep resist the devil with the grace that God provides. That's one of the evidences that you're a true sheep. It's that you persevere because God has preserved you. Uh, Just notice what he says in verse 9 about how sheep ought to respond who are truly His sheep. He says they resist the devil. So Peter says this in verse 9. He says this. He says, resist him, the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, resistance carries this notion of an active stand in opposition. There's no such thing as as passive resistance when it comes to spirituality. Now, why is that? It's because uniting with Christ means that we actually become a target of the lion-like devil. Like, he, he hates Jesus, and he hates the children of the king. Now, think about it. Peter says the same kind of sufferings they are experiencing in these Turkish churches are being experienced by the the brotherhood throughout the world. Now, I think this means at least a few things for us. For one, he's saying that suffering is normal for Christians because Satan has postured himself against God's flock. Do you see that? He's postured himself against the shepherd and his sheep. Second, The reality of the suffering confirms they are God's sheep. The suffering for some might begin to make them question whether or not God loves them. And Peter says, no, no, this is confirming that you are loved by God. That's why Satan's so against you. He hates it. Third, the reality of Christians remaining faithful amidst suffering throughout the world confirms the chief shepherd's care for his sheep against every one of Satan's attacks and intimidations. We every week pray for distant lands and other countries and other places where churches are. And as we do that, you might like ask why are we doing that? Well, it's it's a beautiful narrative that God is developing where there are churches and places that hate Christianity, where it's illegal to worship, where churches are growing and multiplying as an evidence of the power of the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd calls his sheep and they come running. And He is the one, by His very own power, that is protecting and maintaining and caring for them in ways that we never could with no matter how many resources we had. Jesus is the one who is caring for those those churches, and that is why we are praying for them. See, some have their very lives. Some lose their very lives. But they have not lost their souls, trusting that God will exalt the humble even from death. In other words, devouring does it that we will not be devoured does not mean that we won't die, but it does mean that our souls will not be taken from us, that they are God's, they are with Christ on high. So if you aren't firm in the faith, you are limp, and that comes from not knowing and trusting God's Word. It's ultimately a confidence not just in your knowledge of Scripture, but a confidence in the relationship that you have with the point of Scripture, Jesus Christ Himself. By faith we cling to Christ, and all the tighter is Satan roars. See, mature Christians, hear this, Mature Christians don't have bloody knuckles from duking it out with Satan. That's not what a mature Christian looks like. You know what a mature Christian looks like? If you look at the knuckles, they have white knuckles. You know why they're white? They're white from grasping on to Jesus more tightly. Like when they get scared, they don't think, well, I can get myself out of this. They think, I need you, Jesus. Like that's the the call of the person who is a sheep who knows who the shepherd is. Mature Christians are less confident in themselves and more confident in Christ. And the only way to fight the devil is with your back to him, right? Like not normal fighting. So if you get picked on at school, this is not advice on fighting at school, right? Let your parents talk you through that. You do want to face them, I think, at least if you're fighting, right? That's not the image that we get in the Bible, though. The image that we get in the Bible in James 4, 7 to 8 is resist the devil. Run from him and he will flee from you, right? You run from him and you draw near to God as God draws near to you. You might want, well, how is it safe to run from Satan? Like, why does he get intimidated? It's because he sees who you're running to. And when Satan sees you running to God, he's terrified of God. Just think about it. The devil is pictured as a restless enemy constantly on the prowl against the children of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're an enemy of Satan? And he seeks to intimidate you by running to cause you to run away from Jesus. So how do you resist? How are you resisting fighting Satan actively today? Is it active? Is it in the morning when you wake up? Do you understand that the devil's on the prowl? Do you sense that? Do you sense the grace of God and the devil's on the prowl? Like, I think those are things that Peter would say, you need to at least be aware of. Maybe more of the grace of God, but not unaware of the devil. Well, in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, the story of how Peter thought he could do this himself, fight the devil by himself, when he told Jesus in Matthew twenty-six thirty-five, though all men deny you, I will not. You remember that, like famous last words. Everybody denies you. Peter says, "I will not." Same author of this book, and yet, what is he going to do? Deny Jesus three times? It wasn't something that he could do in and of himself. It was something that he needed the power of God working in him to do. And then he did. He told he denied Jesus three times. So, how do you do that? According to First Peter five, I think it means that we need to be humble. It means that we need to be humble and and bow ourselves, prostrate ourselves before the holy, righteous, sovereign God who is in control of all things. I think it means that we need to be daily about the business of communing with God in His Word and prayer. Are we communing with Him? Are we sensing the power afresh of God in our lives? Are we growing in that? We need to be watchful for the enemy and all of his devices. We need to be aware of our own hearts and our sin tendencies and the ways that we tend to wander from God in our hearts. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it, if we want to be firm. We need to understand our faith. We need a community or a local church that is the pillar and buttress of truth to help us remain close to Jesus. And we need to cast our cares on God every day, trusting that He cares for us. But there's a fourth thing that we see finally here, and that's this in verses 10-11. to This is good momentary sufferings will give way to eternal glory. Here's what he says in verses 10 to 11. He says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's good stuff, isn't it? See, humility and suffering are not the end goal for the people of God. We're not supposed to suffer and be humble just for suffering and humility's sake. No, the end for the people of God is God's glory. Glory is what awaits us. See, sufferings don't feel small in real time, right? Anybody here think like sufferings feel small in real time? I always feel like they're like bigger than they probably actually are, right? I mean, they always look like closer, bigger, further away, smaller, in the moment, it always feels huge. But Peter reminds us that they are momentary and brief. Now, in, in what sense are they momentary and brief when they feel so long? Well, it's in comparison to the eternity that awaits. Have you thought about that? The eternity that awaits us in Christ? Have you gotten bored with thinking about that? Because it's like so far out of the categories that you have? Peter says, let me remind you of the word Eternity. And then let me just ask you to begin to imagine the, you know, how in infinite that is, and then compare this momentary suffering to that, and it's so forgettable when you consider the eternity that awaits you. In light of eternity, when you're there, so many things that seem so big right now will seem so small, you might not even be able to see them anymore. Difficult marriages, chronic illnesses, public harassment, the loss of a job, a job that you loved, even the loss of Life will seem short and small, like a little while in comparison to the glorious, eternal future that awaits us. See, the same God who brings about humility in his children, carrying them himself through their sufferings will also one day not only carry us, but exalt us on the last day. And the God of all grace describes the nature of God as the source of every good. But here, notice that he isolates a particular manifestation of the grace of God, who is the God of all grace. Did you see that? He's focusing in here on what that is. And he says, it's this aspect of his grace that I want to point out. He is the one who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Now, the Bible uses calling in different ways. It's not always used in the same way. But it's interesting that Peter seems to use it consistently, this calling. He uses it in 1.5, 2.9, in 2.21, and in 3.9. You can look those up later. And he uses it here, in every case it seems, to speak of God's effective work of bringing believers into saving relationship with Himself. In other words, it's not just a general call that he sometimes speaks of in the Bible. Here he's talking about this effective, powerful call that actually brings dead people who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. I think that's what's going on here. See, this verse serves as an explanation and a promise to those who are truly called. The explanation is for how anyone makes it to the end, and that is that it is God's work in them. God has done it. It's an inside job. God is at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. In fact, the four words that are used here to describe what God will do simply confirm that God will keep His promise to get His sheep all the way home. See, the promise is that for those who faithfully suffer, the future is incredibly bright. And the glory of the future will dwarf any past suffering. And one day Jesus will return Himself to completely remove the afflictions which weigh us down. And He won't even have to flex to do it. In exchange, He is going to lay on us an immeasurable weight of glory that will make all of those afflictions seem so light. And it's hard for us to imagine how God could undo the afflictions that weigh us down today. But on the last day, we will be shocked by how light they seem. How light, hard marriages, chronic illnesses, tragic deaths, unrelenting loneliness, vocational failures, persecutions for faith, and the list goes on. They will all seem so light in comparison to the fullness of God's glory when it arrives. Now, I'm not sure this is meant to make our present suffering seem small, as much as it is to help our imaginations really run wild with how magnificent the coming weight of glory must truly be, right? So in other words, the greater the suffering that you sense, that you feel there's no way that God could undo this, the greater the weight of glory must be to actually make this seem small. Do you see that? And that's great math. And that's when God's eternal dominion will be experienced in full, when His glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. What a day that's going to be. Let's pray.
3: say i yeah.
5: can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now.
0: Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible.
5: Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I know God's will over my life? Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Don't live the way this world lives. Let your way of thinking be completely changed. Then you'll be able to test what God wants for you and you will agree that what He wants is right. His plan is good and pleasing and perfect. This word teaches us that when we change the way we think completely by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will know God's will and whatever He finds good, pleasing, and perfect. So, how can we change the way we think? This happens when we choose to believe and agree with God's truth in our lives. What we think about every day is very important because our thought life really affects how we live. So then, what kind of thoughts do you think our Heavenly Father wants us to think about every day? Let's find out together in the following scriptures. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, always think about what is true. Think about what is noble, right, and pure. Think about what is lovely and worthy of respect. If anything is excellent or worthy of praise, think about those kind of things. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, Think about things that are in heaven. Don't think about things that are only on earth. After learning what His Word says, what kind of thoughts will you choose to think about every day? Will you think about thoughts that the Holy Spirit wants, which will bring life and peace to your heart? Or will you think about thoughts that your flesh and this world want, which will bring death and fear to your heart? I am so glad you chose God's truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no one like you. We worship you with our hands raised toward heaven as our hearts are filled with praises of radical thanksgiving. Father, teach us how to love you with every passion of our hearts, with all the strength of our souls, and with every thought that is in our minds. Holy Spirit, help us every day to always think about what is true, authentic, and real, honorable, admirable, and beautiful, pure, holy, and excellent, righteous, virtuous, and praiseworthy. Lord, we praise you for setting us free from the Spirit of fear and worry, and giving us the mighty power, love, and mind of Christ. Show us how we can stay focused and think about all the treasures of your heavenly realm, and fill our thought with your truth. For your word is perfect. It gives us new strength. Your truth can be trusted. It makes us wise, and your commands shine brightly. They give joy to our hearts and light to our minds. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen.